Hi, I'm Brett Samuels, and welcome to episode six of the Open Mic Marketing Podcast. Over the past few weeks, we've talked with a wide range of business owners, presenters, creatives, charities, and marketeers. But when you think about it, our business success, our ability to help others, and indeed our ultimate satisfaction and happiness are all greatly affected by one word, politics. Today, I have the opportunity to meet with Conservative MP for Hitchin and Harpenden, Bim Afalami. Bim was educated at Eton and Oxford University, and he worked as a corporate lawyer and at HSBC before being elected to Parliament. He opposed Brexit, chairs the all-party parliamentary group on renewable and sustainable energy, and we both share a love for the Gunners. Bim, welcome to Law Creative. It's an honour to have the opportunity to interview you in our brand new podcast studio, which was built with the excellent help of the Hertfordshire Business Expansion Grant Scheme. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Brett. Thank you for having me. So, Bim, here at Law Creative, the majority of our success emanates from our ability to create successful digital campaigns. What makes the UK a world leader when it comes to technology and innovation? It's an interesting question and a very big one. What do I think makes the UK a world leader? Well, the first thing is heritage and culture. So we have always been at the cutting edge of technology, whether you go back to the Industrial Revolution, really. And I think that that heritage has continued through the ages. I think that's one reason. A second reason is we've actually always been able to absorb talented people from other countries. And what that does is it helps all of us here, of whatever age, whatever part of the economy you're in, everybody raises their game when talented people come from abroad and feel welcome here. And I think that's something that's always been a strength of ours. And also just the skills base we have in this area is very, very strong. And that is partly a heritage thing. It's partly due to our school system and particularly our universities when you're talking about technology and innovation. And I suppose there's a last thing, which is the significant impact of the City of London and finance, which doesn't always, you know, it's not 100% brilliant for the economy. There are distortive effects with it. But when you have that as part of your economy based in London, in a comparatively small country, it means that the access to finance, to finance your exciting idea, it's not perfect. I know very good companies that find it difficult, but generally speaking is better than almost any other country for people starting out or wanting to do sort of an idea. And I think that all of those things together make us a world leader. I suppose just to build on that, so Deloitte's GDP growth forecast for the UK is around 7.5% for 2021 and puts us ahead of the US and Germany. Why do you think we're predicting post-COVID-19 growth and why are we being so optimistic? What's our secret? It's very difficult to know. My instinct is a big strategic reason beyond you know the inherent sort of strength of our economy brilliance of the british people and all the rest of it what i actually think the strategic reason is is how we designed both the furlough scheme and the sort of government loan schemes because what we did was different from what most countries did we didn't just try to stop everything falling over we actually tried to keep companies and individuals and with that sort of families at a level that meant they could still pay their mortgages or still pay their rents. And that meant that when things came back to normal or more normal, 
over the last 18 months or now, you know, with everything winding up fully normal, we could hit the ground running. Whereas if you take the United States, the US is an amazingly dynamic economy. But what the US did was they didn't particularly go for helping businesses. They went for helping individuals. So certain individuals were getting at certain times $1,000 a week through federal government and their local states and, and whatever. So I'm not saying they didn't try and help, but they did it in their own way. And what that meant was a lot of businesses failed and new businesses will start again. But when you're starting up, it takes you longer to be successful and effective. So I think that the way we kept everything almost in suspended animation is proving to be a very, very good outcome. And secondly, I think that the way in which we have really focused on getting people into jobs. In fact, so much so that what we've now got is almost labour shortages in large parts of the country, which are a complex mixture of a lot of Europeans leaving because of Brexit and COVID, meaning a lot of people going home to their home countries and really not coming back because COVID restrictions and being worried about it or being worried about family members and all the rest of it. But all of those things together have meant that our economy is doing well and people are spending money and doing things. So I'm unfortunately old enough to remember the 2008 banking crash. So as an agency, we didn't lose any clients, but pretty much overnight they stopped spending. It was incredibly difficult. There was no furlough scheme to speak of. Do you think furlough is a blueprint to get over some of those blips in the future, which they'll inevitably be? Yeah, it's, it, this, so this is, I think, really difficult because on some level, I think the answer is yes. When there is a what you might describe as sort of entirely exogenous, i.e. something that's come almost from outer space, a shock to the economy. It is economically beneficial, even if you forget the morality of what happens to people, simply on an economic basis. If you can protect people through that for a period of time, that can help your economy. But the flip side is you can't have a furlough scheme just because of a recession that occurs as part of the business cycle. It has to be through something extraordinary because what I haven't talked about is the amount of money it cost. I mean, at certain times, furlough was costing £5 billion a month alone. That's significant. And that money ultimately has to be paid for. So you've got to be quite careful taking those sort of judgments. What I would like to see is a system whereby we are much better at keeping people in good jobs for longer and if people aren't in good jobs, helping them get to that place, but without removing the safety net, which families and individuals need if they've fallen on hard times. And almost the mother's milk of sort of social policy is how do you have a fair welfare system at the same time as rightly incentivizing people to work? And I think that designing that in the right way is what we should always be trying to do. Universal credit is quite good at that. It has its failings, but it's pretty good at that. And it works a lot better in the crisis than people thought it would. But it could always be improved. And you still hear stories as a constituency MP. I still hear stories of people saying, oh, it doesn't make economic sense for me to work because of my childcare cost. So it's actually the housing costs can be difficult. The childcare costs in particular can be difficult. You know, childcare, I think the average, if you have a child in full-time childcare for a year, is £14,000. That's a lot. Now, a lot of people, for example, in universal credit, you get 85% of that paid up to a cap, which I don't think is quite as high as 14,000, but you get most of that paid. 
But if you're not on universal credit, and guess what, most people aren't, and most people still need childcare, then that's a real amount of money. So it means that there are a lot of people who almost could be in the labour market who aren't. So for me, if there was a policy thing we really need to look at over the next couple of years, it's getting childcare costs down to a place where you know, that number goes down significantly so that people can, if they choose to, because I'm not somebody that thinks you force people to work if they don't want to. There are a lot of people, women and men, for the record, who quite often say, no, actually, for the first couple of years of a child's life, three years or four years, I'm going to stay at home. That's a perfect good choice. But there are lots of others who want to go and work, and we've got to make sure that that works as well as we can. You mentioned the challenges in, in your constituency. So as a result of the pandemic digital growth has been phenomenal in every aspect of society. How have the businesses in your constituency been able to keep pace with the rate of technological change? Well, we're quite lucky in this constituency in one way, and we're unlucky in another way. We're unlucky because we don't actually have that many what you might describe as bricks and mortar industrial manufacturing businesses. There are a few in Hitchin, and I've been to them, but there are not that many. Comparatively, the businesses we do have tend to be businesses just like yours, with very highly educated people. They tend to work in services sector. There's a hedge fund. There are advertising agencies. There are other sorts of businesses that rely on innovation and ideas that are pretty light in terms of capital. And frankly, a lot of them have been working from home over the last 18 months or so. And that's had huge benefits to them. I think that we need to be careful about the work from home revolution. I think that there is, as a society, we shouldn't go too far along that road. And that's not just because I think that it helps younger workers. You know, I'm 35, so it wasn't that long ago where I was a sort of new graduate in the city trying to figure out where the printer was. And you learn through osmosis often. You just learn from being around and listening to people and watching them. I think the work from home revolution, you know, is going to disadvantage those young people if it goes too far but also and the question I pose to people who say well look actually I want to work at home all the time and I do know people like that who live very near to where we are sitting now in Harpenden and they say to me you know what Bim I want to work from home all the time I only want to come in if I have to for a meeting with clients or whatever and I completely understand why they want to do that completely understand it but at some point as a society not individually but collectively if you insist on, say, working from Harpenden rather than going to the office or working from Hitchin rather than going to the office. What's to stop that business that you're working for taking that job to Hyderabad? Because Hyderabad's internet, I can tell you, I've been there, is as fast as anything you'll get here. Uh, highly qualified people, very educated. They're not in the UK, but if you're not going to turn up to the office, they may as well work remotely for half the cost. And I think people have to be very, very cognizant of that because if you lose jobs in terms of a cost center, especially for multinational companies that have people employed in all sorts of countries. Once a job has moved from cost center UK to cost center India or just a floating cost center, we'll just find who's best. A lot of our advantages are going to be eroded. So I think people need to be very cognizant of that. We've had people back in the office for nearly two months now. And prior to that, we sent out questionnaires to see how everyone was feeling. And broadly, everyone did want to come back to the agency, which is great, good to hear. But I think there is now an expectation around flexibility. So we've tried to make that work with, I suppose we'd call it flexibility in a framework, where we've split the team in half. We've said, come in Monday to Wednesday, Thursday to Friday, we're here. 
we don't expect you to be in. But that seems to work quite well because I agree with you and, and particularly in creative industries, collaboration is so important. And whilst technology goes some way towards that, it can't ever be as good, I don't believe, as yeah, people being... It's interesting. Re- I was talking to the editor, or the political editor of The Spectator. This was f- several months ago and he made the point to me that when they were all working from home, putting together their front cover was an incredibly painful and difficult process that took so many hours. And he said that when they all came back in, it was the magic had all come back and they could do it just like how they used to. And that's just a particular thing. He said, writing the articles, you could do at home, no problem. Because actually that's a pretty solitary activity. But actually the creative bit of the magazine, which is that weekly cover... He said, really, it was much harder to do when you were all working from home. And so I think that this is what you find. What's been the direction in Parliament in terms of being there and being visible? Well, politics is a people business. It's also a rough business, but it's a people business. And so, so much of what you do is either with your colleagues talking, lobbying, being lobbied, persuading, forcing, cajoling, bullying, being bullied. That's so much of what Parliament is. And that you can sort of do remotely, but it's much harder because so much of that is occasional. It's somebody you bump into. You know, I had a chat with the Home Secretary a couple of nights ago because we were all voting and we were just there and we had a 10-minute chat and we went, I went and had a drink in her office. Now, I'm not going to call her on a weekend to have a chat in her office. Her officials will be like, what's it about? And In reality, you're never going to do that. So actually, the ability of colleagues to be able to interact, really important. But also... A huge part of your job is really performative. It's being places, it's being seen, it's turning up at the village fete, it's being around for people to listen to you, or it's giving speeches to whoever. You can't really do that. And it's difficult because if you're not doing that, people don't really know what you are doing. They're not seeing you on telly in Parliament because Parliament's sort of not, it's functioning, but not in any sort of real way. They're not seeing you on telly. They're not seeing you in their street. They're not seeing you in their high street. They're not seeing you anywhere. And if they see you in a TV studio, it seems quite remote because you're just in London talking to some BBC journalist or whatever. So actually, it was difficult insofar as it was hard to show people you're doing stuff. Whereas I was doing more constituency work during COVID than you ever do because of the number of people that needed help whether that be individuals or their businesses or health or getting vaccinations when things were difficult or whatever it was. So I was doing so much of that and yet nobody sort of knew you were. So it's, I think, you know, you need both bits. We spoke earlier around young people and and perhaps the effect that not being at work can have in terms of learning and, and developing skills. Through Apprentify, you are interested in apprenticeships for young people. Will a good university degree always offer more opportunity than a good apprenticeship? It depends what you define as a good university degree and a good apprenticeship, but it's my increasing view that what young people need to do, and for what it's worth, I'm doing an apprenticeship event in Hitchin in late October with lots of different companies, both Hertfordshire, National, etc. So I'm really interested in this stuff. What young people need to appreciate is the idea that any university degree is better than the alternative came from a time when fewer than five ten percent of people went to university because in that case you really were an elite group 
And so, yeah, having any degree was better. But when you've got a situation where between 40 and 50% of people are going to university, that is no longer true. And also, when we were in a society where fewer than 5 or fewer than 10% of people were going to university, because there were so few of them, they didn't pay anything. So the risk was so low. You went to university and say it was hopeless and useless. Well, you haven't really lost anything. You then go and get the job you're going to get anyway. Whereas now, to take that route, you really got to be sure that it's going to give you a real benefit. Now, of course, there's some things you, you, know, you can't go and become a doctor without going to university. You know, for example, there are certain things you can't do. But that list of things is comparatively small now, I would say. And so people really need to think about it. I mean, I've seen amazing quality apprenticeships from not just construction businesses that you might expect or house builders or arms manufacturers or things like that. I know that the big accountancy firms, KPMG, PwC, they offer apprenticeships. And I happen to know, because I know partners there, that their apprentices who qualify, and by the way, they're degree apprenticeships, they get qualified and then they go to university and the businesses will pay for them to go to university. They actually produce better results. They stay longer in the business and they do very well. And these businesses, I think, over the next five, 10 years are increasingly going to say, why is our balance of graduates to apprentices 80-20 or 90-10? We should probably make it more like 50-50, which then puts even more pressure on those graduates because there are even fewer places for the graduates when you've even got more graduates in the first place because of 40 to 50 percent of people going to university so actually if you think about all of that as a whole i think people need to think very hard but i don't actually think young people are the problem i think the problem are their parents now look i'm a parent parents all want to do the best by their kids i'm not you know and parents generally are pretty good judges but i do think that the hardest thing about being a parent well there are lots of hard things about being a parent but the hardest thing about it is not projecting your view of how things are or how an institution is on your kids if your view of that is quite outdated because often you experience something 20 years ago 15 20 30 years ago and it's not like that anymore and that is really hard lots of things that you mentioned there that was a a really great answer i like the idea around businesses offering apprenticeships not only to help the workforce but also to get that loyalty and longevity because I think people don't stay in jobs anywhere near as long as they used to so that's a a really good mechanic I also agree with the parental thing and expectations around education and you know it used to be that having a degree would walk you into any job and that's just not the case now do you think that there is more work to do from the educational institutions perspective around the way they're set up and the the courses that they offer just in terms of time and cost and relevance i mean it's very difficult because careers advice has always been rubbish since the beginning of time that's not because people haven't tried to make it good it's just that by definition by the time one is in a position to give careers advice to a young person your career's knowledge is often quite outdated. And even if it isn't outdated, the messenger is so important. If the messenger, being somebody in a school who's a career advisor, kids listen to that message a certain amount. But unless you can get in external people who are successful and interesting in what they're doing, who can interest the kids in the thing that they're doing, unless the kids can really see that from the horse's mouth, so to speak, 
it's only going to have limited effect. And in my experience of careers advice, when I see it, not just when I was younger, but at schools in and around here, gosh, the careers advisors work hard. They spend a lot of time thinking very carefully. You know, they really work hard. They do a much better job, by the way, than I remember it used to be like. But ultimately, the kids that often spend the most time with them are the kids that don't need it. Because these are the kids that are prepared enough to go and see the careers advisor. They thought it through. They say, ooh, should I become an accountant or a lawyer? I'm not really sure. And frankly, those kids don't need to see a careers advisor. The ones who need to see the careers advisor are often the ones that really need to be grabbed by something. They'll be brilliant, but they need to have a passion for it. They're less people who will just do a job well. They need proper vocations. And that, I think, is very hard for any school or education institution to give people. Not impossible, but it's hard. You have to bring in externals. It's a bit like when I was younger, and and I'm sure they still do this, but at school and they'd tell kids not to take drugs, and, you know, drugs are bad and everything, which they are, uh, in case anybody's listening. But I thought um, that was going to be a really serious scoop for me then. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> drugs are bad. But they used to call in former drug addicts to come and talk to the kids explain what happened to them and you walk out of these things you know in the school assembly or whatever you walk out completely shell-shocked you think oh my goodness i can't believe and that's the point if your teachers are just telling you drugs are bad well kids don't listen to that you know so and it's not quite the same with careers obviously the careers advisors have a lot of contact with businesses and good careers advisors and i know them themselves have often been very successful in business and they decide in later career to come back to the school so It is a lot better than it used to be, but fundamentally we need to bring people in from the outside. We need to formalise that process a lot more. That needs to be happening not just once, a special time in the year. That needs to be something entirely embedded within the curriculum. Some schools do it better than others, but I feel sorry for the schools. I'm not having a go at them. They feel very under pressure because of the amount they have to get through in their curriculum. They're not judged on this. People work to their incentive structure. If you're a school that gets bad math results, but you say, but we had careers people here every single week, Ofsted aren't going to thank you. So I do think that that's the job of government is to make sure we embed in the proper structures to make that work. I want to switch gears slightly now, Bim. So just around Brexit, as an agency, we have a lot of international clients You voted against Brexit. With everything that's happened since then, have you changed your mind? And what is your advice to business remainers? I'll do the last one first. Political events are a bit like weather in business. You just have to deal with them and you can't worry about them. You just have to operate in the context you're in. And I think it's very dangerous in business to psychologically get to a place where the reason why this is not working is because of Brexit. If there is a technical reason, you know, there is a particular law that I rely on to do something and that is not the case, then obviously you're in a different position. But generally speaking, most business is not really obstructed by anything like that. And it's more of a mentality. It's it's a way of thinking about the world. So I think that you should strip that out and treat political events like the weather because Brexit really was a political event and that's what it was. In terms of my own views, well, you know, I was not in Parliament. I was working in the city at HSBC. I was very interested in politics, obviously, because I became a member of Parliament, you know, a year later. But my view at the time was that I didn't see the need for it. I was perfectly happy with the way things were. But I also wasn't particularly opposed. And I, to be honest, wasn't really surprised when leave one. And I very quickly moved to a position of, fine, uh, let's get on with it. Certain things the European Union has done since has shown that there was clearly 
going to be a large amount of friction always with the UK and the European Union. And I really now question whether that was ever going to be sustainable in a way that I didn't quite feel as much then. And I think that was probably because my understanding was less. So I think, you know, now it's, it's completely fine. It hasn't obstructed the vast majority of what's going on. The things that have been difficult, and I know there have been certain things that have been obstructed, by the way, in a very technical way, you know, certain rules, certain regulations that aren't working. Those things we're working every day to try and sort out, I know, in government. And do you think a lot of that obstruction has been a factor because the EU doesn't want more countries to leave, so they've they've well, come down especially hard? Well, I mean, that's that's just definitely true. They have been very difficult. It's also a cultural difference between the EU and the UK. Law in the UK is meant to be enabling. It comes out of common law. It's meant to be something that's a bit flexible, a bit mutable. The European Union is really a bureaucratic legal construct. And the way they will do this from Brussels is, look, the regulation says this. It doesn't matter whether the common sense thing says this or not. That's what the regulation says. And the irony is that a lot of European Union member states understand that and apply their own common sense when they do things. But when you're dealing with a third country, like the UK is now, then of course, you've got to deal with the Commission and they lay down the law in a particular way. So it is partly, I think, slightly deliberate, but it's also just a cultural difference. Do you see other members taking a similar route to the UK in the future? No, because... You know, in the future, what is it Keynes said? In the long run, we're all dead. So who knows? But what I would say is the euro is really the centre of the European Union. And anybody outside the euro will increasingly see their decision-making power, to, to the extent it still exists, gradually reduce and reduce and reduce. And those countries are going to have to make a decision whether they're going to be happy outside the main driving force, where all the decisions are taken for everything, or whether they're going to have to go in or leave the European Union completely. And only those countries will be able to answer that. And do you think the UK's decision to leave the EU, how do you think that's been perceived in Europe and across the wider world? If you think of something that might happen in Eastern Europe or South America or Central America or Asia, a political decision a country may make, the amount of time you invest thinking about that, even if you're interested in politics and world affairs, is comparatively low. So I think that a lot of people in the world have quite a superficial understanding of Brexit and what it was. I think they think, oh, you know, Britain's fallen out with Europe. Well, that's a bit silly. They're all Europeans, aren't they? Why don't they just not all be in the same European Union? But that doesn't mean that that's the right call. I just think that's perception because people aren't steeped in the minutiae of the Britain's relationship with Europe over hundreds of years. Bim, it's been a pleasure talking to you, but before you go, and as an Arsenal supporter yeah. and an ex-player for Oxford yep. University, yep. if you could make one new signing for the Gunners, who would it be? I'm an Arsenal fan, by the way. I mean, so. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen somebody like Harry Kane come and forget the Tottenham Arsenal thing. What Arsenal needs to show everyone is that it's still in the market for being one of those top three or four clubs. Because once you slip away from that, you can be away for a very long time. It happened to Liverpool in the 80s. They are winning everything and then they just slipped away. They were still a big club, everybody knew Liverpool, signed the odd good player, but they weren't at that level anymore. 
And I think that that really is the decision for Arsenal over the next season. It's are you going to be a big club or not? Do people see you in that vein? And I think that's the worry. So no parallels with UK and, and no. the, the EU no. there. <laughs> no. But it, but you're saying for Arsenal it's important to be in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, because, yeah, I mean, Europe gives us money in, in Arsenal's case, whereas <laughs> the UK, the European Union takes it. So it's slightly different. Bim, it's been a real pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Bim Afalami, MP. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Open Mic Marketing Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, I'm Brett Samuels. Goodbye.